Let's turn our attention to the word and would you join me in prayer as we tackle tonight Genesis chapter 17 and a study I've entitled, How Big Is Your God? I pray he's huge. Amen? Because we need him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight and again just the, the majesty, the wonder, the beauty, uh, the truth of your word. Lord, your word is life uh, and we cling to it here in this church and we teach it authoritatively, cover to cover. We believe that from Genesis to Revelation, all of it was written of you. And we pray that tonight uh, you would speak to us out of your word, that we would be encouraged and strengthened and built up. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be moving into a time where we're going to cover fairly close to a chapter, if not a full chapter, Uh, on each uh, Sunday evening service through much of the remainder of the book of Genesis, except where it's really appropriate and just nearly impossible. So tonight, uh, chapter 17 and verse 1. And when Abram was 99 years old, so he's now uh, another 13, 14 years older, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, yet another name for the Lord God, I am Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. Again, a critical part of our Christian walk is that we walk before God. In other words, the picture is, uh, how many of you have had the opportunity to walk with your kids like through Disneyland or something like that? Maybe someplace where, where you're taking them and you're uncertain of the environment. Where do you always have your children? They're always in front of you. Why? Because you can see their every move. If they're behind you, you have no idea what they're doing. They could be running off in any direction. And so Abram is instructed, walk before me, Abram. Let me have my eye on you. You walk before me. And be blameless. And so this is a picture of our intent to follow hard after God, our our walk before the Lord, recognizing he sees absolutely everything that's going on in our lives, And so Abram is now going to be given uh, this covenant in full here in chapter 17 uh, that God is going to make with him. And he says, I will make my covenant. And I want you to underline or circle whatever you do in your Bibles. If you have a highlighter, highlight it. Uh, As you see this phrase come up, you see these two words come up, my covenant. You're going to see also everlasting covenant, but my covenant between me and you. And remember that God is being very specific with the wording here in Hebrew. He's saying, this is mine, I made it, I wrote it, I authored it, I'll keep it. I'm making the covenant, Abram, between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. And when Abram fell on his face, God talked with him saying, if you've ever wanted to know uh, how to best get the ear of the Lord... As little of you as is possible, if you are on your face, if you are prostrate before God, if you're desiring to hear from him, there's not going to be a whole lot of you standing up. There's just going to be you and the Lord, and you're going to be on your face. Every time in heaven when we see the angels of heaven or the saints in heaven before the Lord, where are they? They're on their face. They're before God. They're bowing down. They're making sure that God understands that they understand that he is El Shaddai. He is the mighty God. 
He is the one who is above all. He's the one who sees all. And so he says, walk before me. I'm going to make you exceedingly great and multiply you. And God talked with them. As for me, behold, and so these are the words of the Lord, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Not simply just the promised nation, though he'll be the father of Israel. He's going to be the father of all kinds of nations because he's also the father of Ishmael. So he's going to be the father of all kinds of nations. Tremendous covenant that the Lord makes with them. And so he gets a name change in verse 5. And no longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, not, not just ethnic groups, not just basic peoples, not just aunts and uncles and cousins, not just people who are related to one another by blood, but literally nations will arise uh, out of, of Abraham now. And kings shall come from you. Uh, you know, sometimes we forget that being the father of the Jewish people, every last Hebrew king was related to Abraham. And so all of the kings, because the children of Israel are going to be born out of Jacob, who will later become, be called Israel, and from Israel will come all of the kings. And so he's going to be the father of the kings, especially of the Jewish people, but also some others. And I'm going to, and I, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. And then notice this the first time for an everlasting covenant. So how long is the Abrahamic covenant in force? It is everlasting. It is from generation to generation. It is without end in that sense. He's made it to a very specific group of people. And it is to them that it applies in its fullness. We are the inheritors of parts of the promise. Because we too are going to be adopted. We too are going to be called. Uh, But the Jewish people have a wonderful, special, unique, beautiful position uh, in God's kingdom that is only... The, the result of being born into, in essence, the, the tribes that we know is the ones that will come from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob. And from them, of course, the, the Jewish people themselves, the, the children of Israel. To be a God, to be God to you, not a, but the, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And also I give you and your descendants after you the land. And so here's another part of this covenant. So we see that he's going to be prospered. We see that he is going to be the father of multiple nations, the father of kings. And that there is a land associated that we've already had described. And that is a large portion of what we would call today the Middle East, stretching all the way from North Africa all the way to the very far side, nearly into Persia, uh, but the middle of Iraq, all the way into southern Turkey, including the countries that we would currently call Syria, Lebanon, uh, of course, all of Israel, Jordan, 
everything that is largely what we would call the Sinai, part of Saudi Arabia. And so this massive area of land given perpetually, notice it's an everlasting covenant. So from God's perspective, the land belongs to him, as the prophet Joel says. He's given it to the Jewish people as an inheritance. And so all of that land, so when you read today that once again the nation Israel is is needing to protect its borders, this monumentally tiny country that faces terrorist attacks on a daily basis, uh, the, the latest weapon of choice for Hamas has been uh, actually balloons, and underneath the balloons is a small bag of flammable material, and they launch the balloons, start a brush fire, and burn down fields and homes. Prime Minister Netanyahu said today, it's, we're not putting up with it anymore. And so once again, they're fighting for this little tiny chunk of land that is a minuscule portion of what God actually promised to the Jewish people via an everlasting covenant. And trust me, if God says, I will make this covenant, he will make this covenant, and don't be surprised when Israel prevails. Because God gave them the land as a perpetual covenant. It's not anybody else's to take away or deal with, though the world has tried and continues to try. They will ultimately and ultimately and totally and completely one day fail. Right now Israel is confined to this tiny little sliver, this 8,000 square miles uh, of the promised area that is so much of the Middle East. And I will be your God to, your, to you and your descendants. And also I give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. And so now Abraham has been given a part that is his. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And this sounds like almost insane. When you really think about it, okay, you're going to give them a sign of the covenant and it's going to be, it has to be this. And we'll talk about this in a few minutes. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign unto you of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, even your servants. So holy was the household that was going to be ultimately uh, described as decidedly Jewish, that even if you had a servant, uh, they, they wanted the covenant of God kept to walk before God, that they would honor the Lord with their life and with their living. And this would be a sign. He was born in your house, he was bought with money, must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. In other words, you're saying you're not going to, once, once this happens, you're not going to be able to undo it. And the uncircumcised male child who is, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. A very simple and a very strange command. 
This is what I want you to do. And so very often, God gives us very simple and yet seemingly strange commands. It's like, seriously, Lord, you care about that? Yes, I care about that job. And then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give, give you a son by her. You can imagine at this point in time, he's going, yeah, right. Sure. And then I will bless her and she will be the mother of nations. And kings of peoples shall be from her. And I want you to know this incredibly strange response. I've always marveled at this. And Abraham fell on his face, so he does the right thing, and he laughed. Looks like you could, I, and we really don't know, but my take on this is that I think he's beginning to get the picture. And I think this is really joy that's coming from the, from the Lord because the way he's doing it seems to indicate that he's fallen on his face before the Lord in faith. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. I don't know if you've ever had those situations where you just, it's, I call it God giggling. You know, it's just like, Lord, if you do this, it's awesome. I have no idea how you're going to do it, but it's going to be good. This is going to happen. And with his descendants after him. And so it doesn't just end there. God's saying something that's unique. God's saying something that's wonderful. And he laughed. And then you can kind of see the questioning, but not questioning to the point of unbelief because we know that Abraham, like no one else in all of Scripture, is called by God as a man of faith. So as much as his faith is tested and as much as his faith is not perfect, we're beginning to see the glimmer of this, this great faith that will ultimately be exhausted uh, by the time he goes home to be with the Lord and all the great things that the Lord has done, so much so that his name will be first on the list when you get to the book of Hebrews. For by faith, Abraham was righteous. And he fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, you can understand his question, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? He's 99. It's not going to be miraculous, so it's going to be another nine months after that, so it's going to be 100 years old. People sometimes pull this out as a contradiction. It's like, duh, biology. Like, hello. Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, you can see the lapse of faith and the face of faith. You can see him vacillating. You can see him believing. You can see him questioning. Anytime you're, you're in that place of questioning God, you can go back to this passage of scripture and go, you know, the great Abraham didn't quite have it perfect. No, that's not how it's going to happen. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. 
You can imagine the question is genuine. What about my son? He's now a teenager. Abraham loves Ishmael. Sometimes we're so quick to just remind ourselves that Ishmael is, because he's, he's the child of the detour. It's almost as if, you know, God's hand was never on him. No, God's hand was clearly on him, and God makes promises to him as well. I have heard you, and behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly, and he shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Do you see it? So he makes some promises to Ishmael. He blesses Ishmael, but the covenant is made with Isaac. Make sure you get that distinction. The covenant belongs with Isaac. The descendants of Isaac through Abraham, not with the flesh and Ishmael. Though Ishmael will be blessed, and he will also be great. In other words, he's not punished in that sense. My covenant will be established with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you at this set time next year. And when he finished talking with him, God swept, uh, went, went up before Abraham. And so Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the, Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day. So you can see he acted on his faith. Faith without works is dead. Amen? God says, this is the covenant I'm making. Abraham says, okay. I'm not sure I understand this completely, but I understand you said it, God, and that's good enough for me. Can I tell you that's extremely wise counsel in your life and your walk with the Lord? If God's word says it, do it. If he's made a command, if he's made a commitment, if he's given you one way versus another way, and there are two ways and God speaks of one way, you can be very much assured that the one way that God has affirmed is his way. And do it that way. Same day, as God had said to him, when Abraham was 99 years old, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and that very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born of his house, were bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. And so this incredible picture of how big is your God because there's still this impossibility that's looming before the family. God has made a promise, but they're, they're now stopping and they're going, okay, God, this is on you. And so he gives himself, God does a, a new name. He says, I am, I am El, I am God, Shaddai, mighty. I'm mighty God. Abraham, you're not mighty. I'm mighty. And so he makes this covenant promise with him and he changes his name. And as God speaks into this whole situation, it's so interesting. He uses this Hebrew word, bereth, which kind of outlines what God himself is promising. And it's as if God took out a, you know, back in the old days, how many of you remember carbon paper? You remember carbon paper? Yeah, we used to do everything in duplicate and triplicate, and you had to load the carbon paper into an IBM Selectric typewriter if you had a really good one, you know, and you'd be typing away. And 
You know, there, there'd be multiple copies, and every stroke of the key made a copy, in essence, onto the paper behind it. And there's a little bit of the symbolism that's here in this covenant because God's saying, look, I'm making the covenant. I'm striking the keys. I'm saying something, and I'm going to give you a copy of it because I want you to know that I meant what I said, and here it is. I don't want you to ever misinterpret my intention here or to believe something wrong about me. And so he imparts this knowledge to Abraham recorded in the Word of God here in the book of Genesis, passed down through generations. He says, look, this is your copy. I want you to get it. I want you to understand it. And in order for them to really get it, he uses the adjective, in essence, covenant, in the, in the sense, or the adjectives that are attached to this word are, are significant. So it's, it's my covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant between me and you. He's saying, look, this is, this is me. I'm doing it. Here it is. It's now yours. Walk in it. And Abraham immediately begins to walk in it. And so God says, look, it's on me. And what we see now is he, he begins these name changes. And I want to look at those really in the, the remainder of time. You see, back in that day, and really to some degree, even all the way to this day, the naming of a Hebrew child, especially the boys, was significant. It was significant with the girls as well, but very much so with the boys. And so when you look at Scripture, sometimes it gives you kind of a little window into God's character. And one of those things that you can look at, and I want to take you there, if you want to go there to chapter 29, uh, we'll get to it when we study that chapter. But I think it, it's an interesting thing to look at because God is changing names constantly. He, he's changing your name because he took you from an unbeliever to a believer. And he took you from one who was not walking with the Lord to one who was walking with the Lord so effectively, though your actual name wasn't changed, your name really was changed because your new name also includes the name of Jesus, amen? Because you are a follower of Christ. And so in that sense, it's almost like you've got a new surname because you're now identified it is no longer you who lives, it is Christ who lives in you. So in essence, you actually did get a name change when you gave your life to the Lord Jesus. You're identified as a Christ follower. I am the Christ follower, Jeff Gill. That, that's my new name. It happened in the Old Testament. And God did it one at a time. But here, it, beginning in the 31st verse, and this is a story of Rachel, and uh, she's going to, to bear her children. It says there in verse 31, when the Lord saw Leah was unloved, that he opened her womb, but to Rachel, who was barren, she bore not. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she, shall, she said, Surely the Lord has looked on my affliction, and now therefore my husband will love me. And then she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, and therefore he's given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bore another son, and now my husband will become attached to me, because I have now three sons, and therefore called his name Levi. And she conceived again and bore another son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. And then she stopped bearing. And if you take all four of these sons and you put them together, it's kind of amazing. Reuben, a son. Simeon, he heard. Levi, attached. And Judah means praise. A son, he heard. 
and attached praise points to none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus. And so here in the lineage of the patriarchs are these wonderful name changes. And so we see them in our passage tonight. The first is of God himself. He's now known as the mighty God or El Shaddai. And when you think of El Shaddai, you see, God comes to us, we, we understand that he is also El Gabor, that would be hero God, that he is Jehovah or El Rapha, which is our healer. He is Yahweh's canoe, our God who is righteousness. God has many, many, many names. But in this particular passage, Abraham was to know God in a new and a fresh way that God can do anything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But by him and through him, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Now that promise of Philippians 4. And so he wants Abraham to know who he is. Look, I'm all powerful. I'm all sufficient. You have a need, I can meet it. You have a problem, I can beat it. If there's something going on in your life, I've got it covered. If you've got me in front, you don't need to worry. You let me lead. And God, of course, also changes Abram's name to Abraham. So he goes from exalted father, Abram, to father of a multitude, Abraham. So so he always had a, a call and a promise on his life. But now he's father of a multitude, which is all the more amazing because he's childless and he's 100 years old. So this name change really means something to, to Abraham. Because he's going to be able to look, up, look back on this day and time and say, I saw God be faithful. When God makes a promise, it's incumbent upon God to keep the promise. Amen? And so when he makes a promise, you can trust him to keep the promise. And when you look back on that situation, you can say, that is my El Shaddai. He kept the promise. He did what he said he was going to do. And as he blesses Ishmael, as he blesses Abraham, every last one of us who are born into God's family are the spiritual children of Abraham. We may not be the literal descendants as the Jewish people are, but spiritual descendants most assuredly. And and of that, you can see that in Galatians chapter 3, by the way. But as you look at this whole process that's going on here, God is basically saying, look, I'm going to do this. You don't have to worry about it. As Christians, we have to depend on God's resources and God's power. You know, every once in a while, anybody else in here get backed into a corner that only God's big enough to get you out of? Oh, my goodness. I think God likes that. I really do. I think the Lord actually delights to put us in circumstances where he's the only answer. Because he receives the glory for it when that happens. Because you can't do it. I can't do it. In this situation, this is a God-only-can-do situation. Amen? I've had a lot of those in my life. I look back on our 40-plus years of marriage. There's been a lot of only-God-could-do-that miracles. We've watched him be faithful over decades. And when we look back, we mark those places. Man, we saw God do that. God was mighty there. 
But we got to keep our heads down where we can let God be God. Amen? Sometimes we try and take over. Anybody in here try and take over God occasionally? And do things your own way? That's kind of like telling him, well, you're kind of mighty, but I'm really better. You don't want to do that. You want to let God be El Shaddai in your life. It's a story of a Scottish minister who was pretty proud of his own abilities, his oratory abilities. He'd been to seminary and practiced his preaching. One of the things that we teach in Bible college, we do a class called Practicum and Preaching. We actually have young guys, you know, prepare a message and deliver it to the class. And uh, their classmates can be pretty brutal. You know, it's not, uh, it's not always, doesn't go all that well sometimes, but the effort is really good. But he had finished that part of his, of his biblical education. And he thought he had it nailed. And the first time he went in to preach before the congregation, he, he went a little long. And uh, not a little long, an hour and 35 minutes long, grr, than he was supposed to go. And he was walking out into the lobby and heard people talking. And there was a couple that had been at the church most of their life and heard, him, heard them remarking back and forth, yeah, the wind of the Spirit was definitely not in his preaching. And he was just, he was kind of devastated. He was crushed. He went back and went up in his pulpit and kind of finished the service. And he came down with his head bowed down and low and, totally realizing he had a long way to go in his pastoral ability. And the husband of that couple came up to him and said, you know, if you had gone up to the pulpit the way you came down, you might have had a better result. (laughs) You got to let God be God. You know, sometimes he wants to do things that you don't understand. I don't understand. And in this case, he gives the Jewish people ownership of most of the Middle East. There are people still contesting that. But their possession, their enjoyment of that land depended on their own faithfulness to the Lord. It was not conditional on God's part whether he would keep it or not or whether it was his land given to them or not. But the blessings were dependent on them listening to God and doing what God had asked them to do. And that has always been the problem. That's always been the issue. More than 60 times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses told the people to inherit or possess the land, and he reminded them that the land was a gift from God, and he said, this is the land that God has given us, but we have to do what God tells us to do. Look, if you want God's blessing, you need to do what God tells you to do. You know, people come sometimes and say, well, you know, I just, that's just not the way the world works today. And I look at them and I say, well, I'm sorry the world doesn't like it, but God does. You know, he said it. That's good enough for me. I, I, that's not my call. You know, his, that's below, you know, I'm like 400,000 pay grades beneath that. I, it's, you, you either believe God or you don't believe God. And so if God says it, you do it. That should settle it for us. And then you know that you're setting yourself up in that sweet spot of the blessing. And so God, 
then tells me, he says, look, I, I, I want you to understand this is my covenant, so I want you to do something. And so he says, I want you to mark all of the people that are in your home, anyone that's part of this. This was not something, I, you know, I think that highly likely that there were some reasons to believe that Abraham had actually known of this prior to this. But as he goes through, you can imagine literally talking to everyone in your family, well, we're going to have a party this afternoon. It's men only, and uh, we're going to meet in the house. And he says, God told me that we need to circumcise y'all. Now, they're probably looking at him like, oh boy, the wine must have been really good this year. But there's an interesting word that's translated circumcision in Hebrew, and it means cutting round. It, it literally means to cut round that which is to be dealt with. And so what he's saying is, is I want you to cut all the way around your flesh. I want to deal with your flesh. I want to get rid of your flesh. I want you to be taken care of as far as your flesh is concerned. I want there to be a difference between you and those who walk in the flesh is basically what he's saying. And while he gives him a physical commandment, it it talked about separation. It made them completely different. Nobody could be born into the world with this. They didn't have to worry about somebody being naturally this way. It was a purely voluntary decision that was made on behalf of the person that said, we're going to do this because we want you to know that you are marked for God's service. So all the way back in the Old Testament, God's saying, look, I'm making a covenant with you. I'll keep the covenant. Here's your part. But your part is something that just marks you as being obedient to me. This act has nothing to do with the actual you know, cleaning up of your life. But it says to me that that's your intent. That's your heart. In other words, it was a faith move. They didn't all of a sudden... Everyone in that room did not all of a sudden be completely sinless. They were not instantaneously made holy, but they were obedient. And later the prophet Jeremiah, even Moses himself, would speak of the the circumcision of the heart, which was the big thing. And so they weren't saved by it, but they were set apart by it. Beautiful picture of our relationship by grace and through faith with the Lord. The third new name that we see here is, is Sarai becoming Sarah. And there's so much disagreement about what Sarai means, but the two, top of the two tops of the list are to mock and to be contentious. Those probably both of them fit. But her new name uh, means princess. She now becomes the princess uh, of Abraham's life. And so picturing how the Jewish people would relate to God and relate to Abraham and Then Isaac is going to come along, of course, and that's the fourth name. But as Sarah's name has changed, Sarah, just like Abraham and just like every last person in this room, we all have our faults, amen? 
But God's able to change us. He's able to do a new work. He's able to create in us a new heart and make a new way. And so when you think about it, think about your own self being in that situation and how God's changed you. You see, these guys got a a literal name change. And so Abraham and Sarah are now laughing about this whole situation because it's completely impossible. But they're trusting God. You may be laughing about that house payment. You may be laughing about some job situation. You may be laughing about something that's going on in your life. It's just absolutely impossible for you to take care of it. But God still El Shaddai. And he can change you from mocking and contentious to a princess. And he can make you uh, into that person that God wants you to be so suddenly and so swiftly that it's like the covenant promise here. It's like, just do it, Abraham. I got this. The final name change that's the positive side is, of course, uh, Isaac himself. And Isaac would be the first baby born in the Bible uh, that gets a name before he's born. And so his name, of course, means laughter. Uh, Ishmael and Isaac, both in this lineage of Abraham. Um, By the time we get to really looking at their lives as they kind of unfold over the next few chapters, you're going to see a principal difference between them. One representing the flesh and the works of the flesh and how... Uh, each one of us is prone to it, and, and the other, Ishmael, of course, being the one of the flesh, and Isaac being the one through the second birth, which is, we identify with that, amen? In other words, the first birth was the flesh, and the second birth was the spirit, which is exactly what happens to you and I as we believe in Christ Jesus. I was born the first time in the flesh. I absolutely was born a sinner in need of a savior. And all I know is that second birth, the one that was the child of promise, the promise that was made to me, Jeff, if you will believe in my name, I'll, I'll change you. I'll, I'll take you from that bitter, angry guy, and I'll, I'll make you into somebody who knows how to love on people. He did that. That's the way he works. That's how good he is. God wasn't going to waste all the time that he invested in, in Ishmael, and so he's going to work in Ishmael's life as well. It wasn't his fault he was born to his knucklehead parents. But I want you to notice that Ishmael didn't get a new name. He got to keep the one he was born with. And that's because he was born in the flesh. And so he, in that sense, represents somebody who does not know the Lord. Because your flesh can't be changed. Your flesh is what it is in that sense. It's always going to be flesh. You're always going to deal with flesh. You're always going to have that old nature. But your flesh can be disciplined. Your, your flesh can be brought into subjection. Anybody figured that out that you still struggle with your flesh? Yeah, well, you were born in the flesh. So your flesh still is right there and it wants to be pleased. And so it is only by the power of the Spirit that your flesh can actually be dealt with. And so God says, look, if you're unwilling to change, that's on you. And so in this passage, we see God working in these ways that we would say are impossible. You've got a child who should never be born. You've got a, you've got a son who's going to be the father of the 
all of the Jewish people, ultimately, Abraham being the ultimate father, but you see Isaac, this new child of promise, who represents the work of the spirit instead of the work of the flesh. That's why John's gospel is already recorded for us in chapter 8, that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That's the day that Abraham was really looking forward to, was the day when Christ Jesus would be born, because he is, in fact, El Shaddai. He's the mighty king, so powerful that he can overcome absolutely any detour, overrule anything that you've had go on in your life, no matter what it is, he's up to the task. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you'd bless us, Lord. And God, now as we spend some time really looking at the things that are on the hearts of your people, uh, would you grace us with your presence in this place and As we continue really in an attitude of adoration for you, speak, Lord, to your people in Jesus' name. Amen.